2: The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. Hello
3: and welcome to The Best in the World with Richard Parr, each week I speak to an Olympic champion, a world champion, a world record holder, or a world number one to find out what they do differently from the rest of us to be the very best in their sports. This week, I speak to the United States Olympic softball pitcher from the 2004 and 2008 Games, Kat Osterman. Kat was part of the team which won gold in 2004, but also on this podcast, she opens up about winning silver at the 2008 Games and talks about the fact that she wasn't allowed the chance for redemption because the sport was taken away from the Olympic schedule for the 2012 and 2016 Games, although it will be back in Tokyo in 2020. It's a really good interview with Kat. She's now an assistant coach at Texas State University, so talks about the transition from player to coach. She talks about nutrition and the mental side of the sport and also talks about being one of the youngest players in in that gold winning team back in 2004 a really fun chat with cat all coming up in just a moment on the best in the world with richard pard just before we get to the interview i want to tell you about patreon patreon is a crowdfunding website and we've got our own page there yes patreon.com forward slash best in the world if you appreciate what we do and you like what we do and you've enjoyed all of our previous 80 plus episodes then please help support our program by going to patreon.com forward slash best in the world where you can donate to our program from as little as one dollar a month that works out at about 25 cents an episode if you think it's worth it then please get involved that's patreon.com forward slash best in the world all right let's get to it let's speak to the united states softball olympic champion it's kat osterman
2: the best in the world podcast with richard parr
3: kat osterman softball olympic champion welcome to the best in the world with richard parr of course we're going to cover your amazing career but let's start by beginning by explaining to people what you're actually up to at the moment
4: Uh, what i'm actually up to at the moment um i am the assistant coach at texas state university and being a college coach there's not really a uh, off season or a summer break so um you know in the middle of recruiting we come in the office here and there and make sure we're ready obviously for next season to come up so just been you know bouncing around recruiting this summer had a little bit of off time and then um you know just now gearing up the kids come back in probably about six weeks so we got to be ready to go were
3: you always going to go into coaching
4: yeah you know I think I made that decision real young um I had an aunt and uncle both that coached and um I've been blessed that most of the coaches well, I should say most of the coaches that weren't my father, um, were great impacts for me, kind of like parents should be. Um, and so I've always looked up to my coaches and I think I told my parents in like fourth grade that I wanted to be a coach. Um, didn't know exactly what sport or if it was going to be college or high school. Um, I played multiple sports growing up. So I think back then it could have been any of those.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, but
4: yeah, I've pretty much always known that once I was done playing, that coaching was the route I wanted to go.
3: Mm. That's interesting. Um, On one of our previous episodes, we spoke to one of your former teammates, Natasha Watley. And she was, yeah, she was doing the transition from player to coach. And she was admitting that she actually was struggling with it. Um, Did you make that transition easily or or did you have a a few struggles with it as well?
4: Um, I think I felt like I transitioned fairly easily in... In the aspect of I didn't expect too much too much of my players, I think a lot of people assume if we're an elite athlete, we're going to assume that players can be the same elite athlete. In that regard, um, I transitioned well. I think my struggle transitioning was probably more in the confidence of teaching. Um, you know, it's easy to go teach 10-year-olds how to pitch when they don't know at all what they're doing, and a different thing when you're going to a college athlete who's done it for a while, been taught a little differently, and now you're going in and you're supposed to make them go to the next level. I don't know that my confidence was real high, um, when I first transitioned. Um, but I also felt like my transition might've been easier cause I did the whole playing and coaching simultaneously for a mm. while. Um, so I got to coach during the season, go play in the summer and come back. And I think that made, once I went into full-time coaching a little bit easier for me too.
3: And mm. um, have you set yourself any personal goals of what you want to achieve as a coach?
4: Um, no, not really. I think that's the one fun part of this is, um, especially being an assistant, obviously, you know, we don't accumulate a record like head coaches. Um, I'm still figuring out what the end goal, um, you know, if I want to be a head coach or not, or if I'm a an assistant, that kind of thing, um, still working that out. Um, but I think, you know, my goal to myself is one that I impact my players, um, not just as athletes, but as people. And then two, that I, unturn every stone and figure out every way, you know, I'll go to battle and figure out what it is that my kids need to get better. And if I know the answer, then obviously that works out. But if I don't, I'll go to the end of the earth to find it in order to try to help them. So Mm. my goals are basically make a difference with my kids. And, you know, I'm never going to give up on them. I'm always going to go searching for an answer for them.
3: Mm. It's good that they have you in their corner now is there anything you've learned in the last few years be it as a coach or maybe in the later stages of your career that you wish you'd known when you were starting out in the sport
4: yeah you know i think um the biggest thing well obviously as an athlete as an athlete i think i wish i had known earlier in my career like how much eating better can help you um you know obviously i think nutrition has been an ongoing Um, research for a lot of people. And just when I was later in my career, the last three years or so, you know, I felt like I ate fairly healthy. Um, Doesn't mean I didn't splurge here and there, but (laughs) I did try to be very conscious of what I was eating and I could just feel the difference on my body, both when I played and recovery wise. Um, And so for me, that was something I wish I'd known earlier. Um, Not that I don't know that it would have changed how my career unfolded, but I just think, you know, Anytime you learn how to recover faster, um, it's always a benefit or recover better. Um, And so that was one part that I wish, as an athlete I knew, um, as a coach, I've just kind of learned that there's about 50 different ways to say one point. And sometimes with different athletes, you have to, it can be the same point between two athletes, but you have to word it completely different for each one in order for them to get it. So I'm always trying to just figure out how to change wording or go figure out, you know, a new technique or skill or way to word something if i have to well
3: that that sounds quite tiring (laughs) i mean that (laughs) mental aspect um we we like to talk a lot about nutrition so i'd like to know Mm -hmm. what some of the foods were that you brought into your diet which you think particularly helped with recovery
4: um well one i mean obviously it's a no-brainer that water is pretty much a key to hydration and or key to recovery that hydration and I always thought I drank enough, um, but once we started traveling a lot, I realized how much just even flying can take it out of you, even though you're not really doing anything. Um, So water became key. I carried gallons of water around from time to time to try to make sure I replenished enough. Um, And then, you know, just post-game, just having healthier snacks. I think a lot of times I would just go chow down and make sure I got enough food and not paid attention to it. Um, So, you know, I started with a lot of fruits and vegetables, um, even if mid game, if I needed it, I had either fruit snacks or peanuts or something to throw in my mouth real quick. Um, I love oranges, so it's easy for me to peel a small little cutie orange and, mm-hmm. and eat it real quick. Um, but it was more my snacks than anything. Cause I think prior to actually understanding nutrition, you know, you want a snack and you go grab a bag of chips and that's probably not the best thing, um, to refuel you for the day. So. Um, for me, it was a lot of just fruits and vegetables and changing my snacking up a little bit. Um, I tried to start my mornings with less of a heavy breakfast because I also worked out in the morning. So I would do more of a fruit smoothie, but like added an avocado and spinach to it to get some protein and some substance in there instead of it just being fruit and yogurt. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that really helped. And I still do that to this day because it's a, a quick, easy, not real heavy breakfast, but it has enough calories to wear. I'm not hungry an hour later.
3: Uh, out of interest, was beetroot involved at all?
4: Um, You know, I have tried that a little bit. I had a trainer that um, in college that she started using it once I was out of college, but I still went to her for treatment and stuff. And so um, she introduced that to me and I did try it quite a bit, um, for, especially there was one summer that I went and got it. But I really don't like the taste of beets. So it was really hard for me to con- continue. <laughs>
3: yeah, it's, it's just something I, I was reading in a book recently saying that uh, a lot of athletes uh, using it the, the night before and it kind of helps them sleep as well um that, interesting anyway a, a bit random question there okay let's uh let's talk a bit more about the early years and you said you tried all all kind of different sports and obviously settled and became very successful at softball when did you realize that you were good at the sport
4: you know I don't think I realized how good I was at the I was at the sport until probably my sophomore or junior of high school um before that I was very I was very average, maybe a little bit above average, but nothing spectacular. Um, I was a late bloomer as far as growing goes. I was, you know, I started high school at five, six and finished at six foot. So, you know, I was a little bit of a late bloomer and so it didn't really grow into my body and my softball skills until later. But I definitely, um, you know, played multiple sports all the way through high school. And then about sophomore year, it was kind of apparent to me that softball was going to be the my avenue if I wanted to play in college and, um, you know, obviously my dad was a huge support and made that happen, but yeah, I didn't really know what, you know, what my route was going to be until later in high school.
3: Mm. Who were the other influences around you as well as your dad?
4: Um, well, you know, there were no real direct softball influences in my life. Um, my dad just made sure we all played sports growing up at least for a little while, um, to give us a, you know, a fair chance at trying everything. Um, so I did that and, uh, softball specific, you know, I had a neighbor that played and it's funny now cause she found some note that I wrote her when I was probably like 10 saying I wanted to be like her one day and play and go to the little league world series. Um, but you know, she played and it was an interesting sport. I had played soccer. That kind of bored me cause I was in the goalie or in the goal. Um, basketball was always a huge love of mine and I played that all the way up until I went to college. Um, But I just knew that softball was going to be obviously a better, a better shot at college sports than basketball. But, um, you know, my mom was supportive. She's not athletic, but she was always very supportive. And then I just found a niche of friends once I started playing um, and we all wanted the same thing. And so it was kind of easy to continue to grow as an athlete when most of your friends understand what you're doing and why you're doing it.
3: Mm. And how did you find the position of pitcher?
4: Oh, that's funny. Um, So really, I was um, playing Little League softball. And there's the rules that, you know, pitchers can only throw so many innings a week. Um, I don't remember what the exact number of innings was back then. But um, all of our pitchers on our team had exceeded their innings or met their inning match. And we still had another game to go. And so the coach asked, you know, who wants to try it? And I raised my hand. Um, I think I struck out one of my first hitters, which was probably A blessing and a curse at the same time because I thought I was really good, even though I'd only thrown like one inning. Um, But I loved I loved being in the circle and trying to do that. And so I asked my dad for pitching lessons for my 11th birthday and um, he granted it to me. We went and had a pitching lesson. And from then on, he kind of set the the standard of we weren't going to have another lesson each week unless I practiced. And I liked it enough that I kept practicing and eventually completely fell in love with pitching.
3: Mm. So was this a specific one-on-one session with like an, an expert pitching coach? Yeah. Oh, wow. It's, it's interesting. There was a, a a goalkeeper. We had a, a, a soccer goalie who, who won the World Cup in 1990 and he had a specific goalkeeping coach, probably around about the same age. So it's, it's interesting how that, how that happened as well. Now, you, you then obviously went to college and, and while you were in college, during that time before you even graduated, you became an Olympic champion. and You were the youngest player in the the squad, weren't you?
4: Yes, I was. In 2004, I was the youngest and the only college player.
3: Oh, wow. How how was that? Was it intimidating at all?
4: Um, It was a little bit. I think um, I was fortunate that in 2007, I had made the Pan Am roster. And so majority of our Olympic team came from that Pan Am roster. So I had at least spent, the entire previous summer with those athletes. Um, so it wasn't like I had just joined a bunch of, um, college graduated women that knew what they were doing. Um, I did get to kind of get my feet wet the summer before. Um, but it's still, it's intimidating. I mean, they all were at least two years older than I was and here I am, you know, not just on, not even an alternate, like I'm on the roster. And so I was excited. It happened probably four years earlier than I really expected. Um, I was really hoping or thinking I would make the 2008 roster, but obviously when we went through 04 tryouts and everything, thought I had a good shot. I just really thought my age was probably going to be the limiting factor. Um, but I obviously I enjoyed every second of it as well, and I think a lot of growth happened because I was the youngest player on that team and I did get to experience so much in between my sophomores and junior year of college.
3: What did you learn the most in that experience?
4: Um, You know, I think one, not that I didn't know what hard work was, because I my work ethic has always been something I've hung my hat on. But as a team, how much we worked, how hard we worked together. Um, You know, we conditioned together, we lifted together, we did almost everything together. And to watch 18 women go through blood, sweat and tears of 10, 300 yard shuttles or, you know, 400s or whatever our conditioning was that day. Um, and then lift, and then just watching each other feed off each other. Um, for me, it was kind of eye-opening. It was almost a, this is how, a, like, a hardworking team works and operates. Um, you know, when you're in travel ball, y'all are a team, and yes, you go practice sport together, but you're not doing everything together. Um, in college, you know, we did things together, but again, I had never been pushed the way I was pushed with these women, and so it kind of was a little bit of an eye-opener. Um, at the same time, you know, we did a lot of stuff mentally together and to be able to ask questions, um, Lori Harrigan, who was one of the older pitchers on our staff kind of took me under her wing. So anytime I had questions, I was asking her and she was always trying to answer my questions and not just because I was the youngest, but helped me be a better pitcher, um, because she was going to, she was retiring after Oh four. And so it was kind of her way of, of passing the torch, um, I believe. And so. For me, it was just trying to soak up as much as I could in order to be a better player, not only when I went back to college, but continue on throughout my entire career.
0: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role.
1: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host.
2: The best in the world podcast with Richard Parr.
3: More from Kat in just a moment, but I just want to tell you about Audible. Audible is one of the leading suppliers of audiobooks in the world and is sponsoring today's podcast. They've got over 180,000 titles for you to choose from for your iPhone, iPad, Kindle, MP3 player. So you can listen to books on the go. It's a product I personally use. I've listened to, for example, Iniesta's book. Yes, Andres Iniesta, the Barcelona and Spain captain called Being the Artist, a very interesting book, really great insight into a champion. And you can do that for free as well. All you gotta do is go to audibletrial.com forward slash best. That's audibletrial.com forward slash best. Then you can check out their product for 30 days for free and that includes one free audiobook download and perhaps that could be Iniesta's book if not as I mentioned they've got over 180,000 titles for you to choose from go and check it out audibletrial.com forward slash best all right let's return to the conversation with the softball olympic champion it's Kat Osterman
2: the best in the world podcast with Richard Parr What about the, the
3: mental aspect of the sport? Now, have you had lots of work with sports psychologists together? Is there anything you, you mentally do to prepare before a game?
4: Um, I didn't have a lot of work with sports psychologists throughout my career. I had a little bit. Um, we had one that traveled with us in 4 with the national team. And, you know, we did all sorts – you know, when we say mental game stuff, it went from all sorts of things, from team building. We trained with the Navy SEALs for a day. Um you know, if you had individual issues, you could go talk to them about how to, you know, res- respond back from a bad day, anything to preparation. Um, I always felt that mentally I was pretty in tune um, innately. I was able to turn the focus on when I needed to and um, be able to process, but yet let go of it when we got off the field after a certain point in time. Um, but I did work a little bit with Ken Revisa. Um, when I was in college, because we would go out to California, and my coach had actually graduated from Cal State Fullerton, where he worked. So he would come talk to our team, and a few times I talked to him individually, just because I knew my, my path was a little bit different than my teammates in college. And the I guess the biggest thing that I learned with him, we did a session right after I got back from the 2006 World Championships, in which I feel like that was probably the one the highest time that I was like in the quote unquote zone where, you know, everything's almost automatic and just explaining that to him. And he kind of asked, well, how did you get there? And I was like, I really, I really don't know. I was just focused. And then all of a sudden everything took over, but I didn't freak out once it took over. And I think um, the biggest thing I learned with him was that, you know, you don't have to freak out when you're doing good or bad. Um, and then that way, I think for the, from 2006 on, I was really able to be consistent because it was just, pitch to pitch no reason to get upset over one not working and one working two pitches later um, but it's been it's been interesting um, game days I don't really do a whole lot to get ready um, usually I'm just relaxing you know I drive to the to the field with music on or every now and then I'll call my dad if it's a team that I haven't played before or a team that I have played before and not been successful and we'll kind of talk it out but for the moment or for the most part it's kind of just I try to relax. I relax and then don't I turn everything on to like main focus once I get in the bullpen. And now my bullpen routine is always the same. It's the same the pitch is in the same order. We end it with the same order, like just as a comfort thing. Um, but I really don't do a whole lot pregame. I feel like the more I understand a routine, but the more expansive your routine is, the more you can get yourself flustered because something doesn't go your way.
3: Mm. Uh, on the last few episodes, I've actually spoken quite a bit about getting in the zone. And as you mentioned there, you said in 2006 is is, a, is as close as you think you've ever came. Uh, mm-hmm. Have you ever come close to replicating that in the last 10 years?
4: Yeah, I I think the other time was um, the last two games in my career, and they weren't even successful games. In '06, the day that I'm talking about, we actually won both the games I pitched. And then, um, what are we now? 2007, So in 2015, last season playing pro ball, um, the last two games it was similar. I pretty much just focused on one pitch at a time and didn't get too high, didn't get too low. Um, you know, didn't get frustrated without when, when I wasn't getting calls or if people put the ball in play instead of striking out. Um, we didn't even we lost both those games, one nothing. But I felt like that was the next closest I'd come because. I was able just to throw um, and not really stress too much about it. And part of that has really been knowing that, you know, that was the last, that was the championship series. So win or lose, I was coming off the field that day and I was retiring. Um, but at the same time, I was able to just just throw and not make it bigger than it needed to be.
3: Mm-hmm. No, really interesting. You said there also about how you relatively happy with your your mental aspect of the game. And of course, one of the things I read here is you studied psychology in, uh, in both a, a bachelor level and in a master's level. Did that help in any way?
4: I think it did, especially with my master's. Um, I did my master's through University of Missouri and they have a really good program that forces you to think how you would apply it um, as a coach or as a player. Um, and so for me to be able to go through that and think about how I would apply it for my players made me think, okay, am I doing this myself, or am I, the way I would talk to my players that I'm coaching, am I talking to myself that way, which I probably wasn't, Um, actually, I know I wasn't, Um, and then, but with my undergrad, I didn't apply my undergrad as much um, as I applied my master's, but I've always been kind of a why person, I want to know why things work and why we do things, and you know, I'll do the, the exercise if you tell me to, but later I'm going to ask you why. I want to know if I didn't feel the direct effects, what was I supposed to feel or what's the purpose of it? Um, and so psychology just kind of gave me that that intro into to asking why and figuring out how things work. And then obviously with my master's, I was able to apply it a little more and um, see how other people do it. And yeah, that helped me as a pl- I think coaching and playing together, like I said, simultaneously, helped me be able to take things I was doing with my kids and apply it to myself and I don't know that I would have had I not been in both elements at the same time
3: Mm. and just just continuing on with the kind of the the mental aspect and the 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 belief side of course the the one thing um I've, I've read a lot about you in the last day or so as I prepared for this interview is uh is your faith as well how important has that been throughout your career for you
4: You know, I actually can admit that I think my faith has been stronger in the last three to four years um, than it was throughout my career. Um, Okay, admitting that. I think I played a lot of my career not focused on God first in my faith. Um, And not that that had an effect on my career at all, but there's much more fulfillment now in doing things and knowing um, where I am in my faith than I feel like, I feel like my career could have been a little more fulfilling internally um, if I had carried him with me. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, my my last season of playing pro ball is kind of when it all started. And um, I put a testimonial out probably about a year ago, I guess, um, and explained that, you know, before every game of my last career, I, I said a prayer, I, you know, told God to say, tell my both my grandparents that are in heaven, High for me. Um, There's a friend of mine and my husband's that I, I have a feeling that between him and God, they put a hand in me and my husband reconnecting in order to be able to live the life we're living now. Um, And I was okay sharing that. And I was okay sharing my beliefs when people asked me after games where early in my career, I wasn't ashamed. I just didn't have a relationship. So I would just kind of shy away from the questions. Um, But I think having a strong belief in something and having a faith you can fall back on it reminds you that there's something a lot bigger going on than just the game you're trying to perfect and play Um, and you know he has a plan for everybody and if it means you're going to be highly successful and use your sport to glorify him then that's great Um, at the same time if you're not going to be highly successful but you're going to learn something and still be able to glorify him like you just trust in that and there's a reason for everything and it's a lot easier i feel like to trust that there's an underlying reason whether you know what it is right away or not um when you have that kind of faith
3: Mm. very interesting Uh, i spoke to a uh, speed skater also from texas guy called uh, chad hedrick and similarly he actually found his faith when he was on the podium collecting his gold medal that's when he kind of realized that it's a bit bigger than him um so really fascinating that i want to just go back to uh pitching because uh, i know we're running out of time okay. but I, I was watching your your action earlier and it's so fast and i thought if i ever <laughs> twisted my arm like that it would fall out of its socket did you get many injuries throughout your career and and crucially how would you cope with them
4: um i didn't have too many i had more uh once i was out of college i, I guess the older you get normally your body starts to tell you it's time to be done, and that's when you get injured. Um, but I, I got through college relatively uninjured. You know, some tendonitis, inflammation here and there, but nothing serious. Um, and then I had thoracic outlet syndrome, um, probably in 2010, I think. Um, and I had a surgery for that. Um, but again, my work ethic is one that I've, like I said, I hang my hat on. So I knew I would come back rehab-wise and um just as in good shape um so i did everything from eating right making sure i was working out as much as i could how i could without injuring, re-injuring myself and then following the rehab program they gave me um and same thing i reattached the labrum in my hip later in my career and same thing but never once did i never once did i think that i wouldn't come back the same um so my confidence in myself and my ability to to work through things um it always stayed pretty strong. And I think if you can tell yourself you can do something, then you can do it for the most part. Um, And, you know, I also knew that if for some reason a complication happened during the surgery, then that was going to be my sign. It was time to move on to something else. And I was okay with that. Um, But, you know, obviously both surgeries worked out great. And I think the biggest thing is everyone wants to freak out with the what ifs and we can't control the what ifs. So why not just control what's right in front of you? And if that means doing rehab three times a day because you can do it as much as you you can do certain exercises as much as you can, then do those exercises as much as you can and don't shortchange yourself. Um, So I was relatively healthy until later in my career, but, you know, injuries, I think haunt most of us because we worry about the what ifs and the, the, the possibles, the possible side effects versus just do what you're told to do and the best of your ability and see how, not how fast you can go back but how
3: strong you can come back Mm, yeah very wise words now just before we kind of wrap up this interview we did ask on social media or on my own twitter page at richard underscore par for some questions and 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 you were very kind enough to retweet it so i'm gonna ask at least one of them and this is from cubby cubby girl forever and she was just asking what is your fondest memory of playing
4: my fondest memory of playing is easy, easily our gold medal um even though i didn't play in the gold medal game um the journey to that olympics and being able to stand on a podium in on foreign soil and hear the national anthem and you know know you just won the biggest prize in your sport um it's pretty pretty amazing um so for me that will always that will always be a vivid memory in my mind and hearing the national anthem even now still um you know, still brings back that memory so that has to be the fondest
3: where does the 2008 games rank for you
4: oh well i being politically correct it should rank up there because you got to go to the olympics um the 2008 games was really actually once i got home hard for me to swallow um you know obviously as a starting pitcher for the gold medal game and we were unsuccessful in retaining that title and we won a silver medal instead and I think that's kind of the phrase that we've had to explain to ourselves over the years is that we won a silver medal um, because in our mind for the longest time we lost a gold medal. And that's what sits with you. Um, you know, the journey was just as just as hard as it was in '04. We did the same thing. We toured and trained together and um, really got to know each other and went over there and obviously were successful for 90% of it. Um, we really lost one game, and that is what everyone focuses on. So,, um, you know, it ranks up there. It has to. It obviously, you would much rather rank wins over losses. Um, but I think what it does rank really high in is a learning experience. Um, it was the first time a lot of us experienced like real failure, not just going over four or not just losing one game, but losing a very important game. And, you know, it being kind of in the spotlight and having to deal with that um i think a lot of us answered questions coming home that we didn't want to answer and they were hard to answer um but it was by far the biggest learning experience and if i the biggest thing i think all of us learned is you don't get defined by that and i think for a long time a lot of us thought we were going to be defined by that and you know you asking about it is obviously um the first time i've had to talk about it in a little while so that shows that you know you're not defined by it because not everyone is bringing that up every time you do an interview or you go to a game or they run into you, you know, out in the general public somewhere. Mm.
3: Did it hurt a little bit more with the fact that that was the last time softball was played at the Olympics? Obviously, it wasn't there in 2012, 2016. It's going to return in
4: 2020. Yeah, it absolutely did. I think that was not just losing hurt us, but then losing and knowing there was real, there was no chance for redemption Um, we couldn't say you know in four years we'll be back we had to wait to see when it's going to come back and you know you can win world championships and world cups and beat the team that beat you even though even though the rosters may be a little bit different but it's not the same as if you had returned to the olympics and and gotten redemption so um it definitely hurt knowing that you know we went out as at that time what was going to be the last olympic team and were unsuccessful for the first time in the u.s
3: History of software. Mm. Well, I don't really want to end this conversation on on this kind of <laughs> lone note. I don't think it's the best way to end it. So, what I would like to know, because normally I like to wrap up with um, the guests telling me how we can continue to follow them on on social media and everything like that. So, I hope you can do that for us. But one thing I did notice on Facebook is your Great Cycle Challenge. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, please? Because I think that's a more of a positive way to end the program.
4: Yeah, for sure. Um, so the Great Cycle Challenge happens every June, and this is the second year um, my mom and I do it. And really, it's for the month of June. You set a goal, um, both a fundraising goal and a mileage goal of how far you're going to bike. Um, last two years, I've set 250 miles. Last year, I didn't hit it because I had had a minimal knee surgery that kept me from biking for a while. But this year, I hit it pretty easily. Um, had a fundraising goal of $500, and we do- almost double, or well, we did double that plus a little bit. Um, but it's basically a challenge that raises awareness and money for childhood cancer. And childhood cancer has been a special cause for me. Um, I've met, two, I've been fortunate enough that, you know, softball has crossed my path with two different girls who battled cancer at a young age. Um, one is, I think we're going on, we might be going on eight or nine years now cancer-free um which is amazing it it affected her sight a little bit when she was younger and she's been able to battle through that and another one unfortunately after i met her and spent some time with her in the hospital um she passed away but i still remain fairly close to their family um and so just being able to see how cancer affects these kids and being able to be affected by visiting them um i feel like childhood cancer is obviously very important to a very important cause to go to bat for. So anytime I can, I do. And the great cycle challenge is part of that um, raises the awareness and funds for childhood cancer. So, um, you know, I do that pretty easily. You can ride your bike outside. You can ride a spin bike, whatever it is, the miles count. And so every day for the month of June, I think I got every day except for like four. Um, I was on my bike at some point um, trying to get at least five to 10 miles so I could get that 250 knocked out
3: fantastic well it's definitely something to be proud of and uh, I think one last thing to mention here is, is again one of the tweets I got today was from Todd Craver and he was just saying just tell Kat how proud uh, we are and how hard you've worked to get kids involved in softball and the countless hours after games signing autographs and everything like that so I think a lot of people uh, really respect what you've done and everything like that Um, how can we follow you online Kat?
4: Um, so on Facebook, I have a page, it's just Cat Osterman, just Cat C-A-T, space, O-S-T-E-R-M-A-N. And actually on Instagram and Twitter, I am the same thing. It's at Cat Osterman, um, all one word. And so I have those two that I pretty much keep up with myself. I keep up all, with all of it myself. Um, nobody runs those for me. So it's all very genuine and authentic. And, um, I try to answer as much as I can. I have to stay within NCA rules, but, um, That way you follow me, my Texas State softball team, and anything else I'm working with, I usually put some updates up there.
3: Oh, fantastic. Yeah, I think I saw you've got over 50,000 Twitter followers, so to try to keep up with everyone all the time can be quite tiring, (laughs) I'm sure. Well, Kat, it's been really good to speak to you. Thank you so much for being on the program, and thank you for being the best in the world.
4: Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it.
2: The best in the world podcast with Richard Parr.
3: Wonderful to talk to Kat there, but she isn't the first softball player we've had on this podcast. If you like that sport and have enjoyed what you've heard from Kat, then go back and listen to my interview with Natasha Whatley. Natasha was part of that same team as Kat in the 2004 Olympic Games. And we talk about a few similar topics, but also she mentions about her life in Japan and how she's actually struggled from the transition from player to coach. Very interesting. It's all on Acast. That's acast.com forward slash best. It's all on com. It's also all on iTunes. Yes, we are on iTunes. And please subscribe to us if you haven't already on iTunes. And if you get a moment, please give us a rating and review. It would really help boost the popularity of our show. So a rating and review and subscribing on iTunes,
2: please.
3: All right, that's it for this week's Best in the World with Richard Parr. I hope you've enjoyed it with Kat Osterman, and I'll be with you again next week. Goodbye.
2: The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr.